0: This is a CBC podcast.
1: Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Wednesday, January 31st. The United Nations is in an all out diplomatic push to save Gaza after Canada and other nations cut off funding to its main aid group. Coming up, we'll ask Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, how this country will respond. And $10 a day childcare is finally here for millions, but some daycares say it's not working. We'll hear why. Plus, the Conservative Party raked in a record level of fundraising last year. The Power Panel is here with their reaction to the numbers. We begin in New York where UN officials have been meeting with member states who have suspended vital funding to Gaza. Canada is one of many nations who paused funding to UNRWA after 12 of its staff were linked to the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. But the U.N. says two million Palestinians absolutely depend on UNRWA's work. Bob Ray is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, and he joins us now from New York. Ambassador Ray, welcome back to the show. Thank you
2: very much, David. Good to be with
1: you. You you were in this meeting yesterday that the Secretary General, Mr. Guterres, called with with the donor nations that have suspended their funding for UNRWA. What can you tell us about that meeting and, and what the Secretary General said to countries like Canada to try to get them to keep funding UNRWA?
2: Well, it was a, it was a quite a long meeting went on for, um, over, an hour, well over an hour. Um, very candid discussion between the member states and, uh, the secretary general. Um, and I think it was a necessary meeting. I actually, um, talked directly to his office on the weekend saying it was important that rather than exchanging press releases, we sit down and start talking with each other directly about what's going on. And so I think it was a good conversation. Uh, but we're in a difficult situation, and I think we, everyone needs to understand it. From, from the humanitarian point of view, from, the, from what's going on at the, on the ground, uh, it's clear that uh, the situation is, is still extremely serious, that uh, there's a lack of humanitarian supplies being provided in Gaza, uh, and that is something that we need to continue to address. And uh, the secretary general said, "There's enough money to keep doing that now, but obviously, if um, if, if the suspension lasts for a very, very long time, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult." So we all understood that. Uh, and I think it's for the for your listeners, it's important to, to know that there were there are 15 countries in total that have said that they are are pausing or suspending whatever word you want to use uh, the funding to under Um Canada in Canada's case, we. We are continuing to I- expand our funding on humanitarian supplies to organizations like the World Food Organization and the World Health Organization, who have access to getting into Gaza and who are able to provide uh, supplies, and as well as the other money. That's the $40 million that was announced yesterday by Minister Hussein. So we're, we're doing everything we can to make sure that, that supplies keep going, and that's the critical thing I think we need to underline. But at the same time the secretary General said well he was looking at two investigations one of them immediate being carried out by the, the, uh, the independent uh, office in, in the inside the UN organization which deals with all complaints and issues around you know the organization's problems if there are any and that's being organized and that's taking place and the secretary General said he'd asked for a report in four weeks no less than and all of us, the member states who are in this position, said to the Secretary General that we wanted to have an ongoing relationship with him that would allow us to get up, updates with respect to what's going on, because we need in-time responses to this investigation. It's not something we want to see you know, carried out, taking forever.
1: Well, can, I, can Secretary- I just... Can I just jump in there? I, I know you want to talk about the second investigation, but just some clarity on that first one. The, the four week investigation that the Secretary General outlined, because you, you laid out the timelines, the, the diminishment of capacity to deliver aid and supplies and financial resources versus this quest for answers. This will, what do you want to see out of this first four week investigation? Like, what does Canada need to see to change its posture on, on pausing the funding?
2: Well, it's not a lot of posture.
1: Uh, I no, I, I didn't mean that in the pejorative, but the, your current position.
2: Well, first of all, we are doing what we do in connection with what a number of other countries are doing. And I think it's important for everybody to understand that. This is not something that Canada's gone off on its own and said, this is what we're going to do. Um, we work together uh, in terms of the support for UNRWA. We talk to each other. We engage with each other and we share information and perspectives, and that's going to continue. The group of countries that are in this position, as well as other countries, because there are four additional countries, it's not up to me to name them, they'll name themselves, that are reconsidering, that are considering their position in light of what, what, uh, what information has been revealed so far. And so we, it, it's not up to us to say now, well, this is what we need to know. We need to know the truth. Hmm. We need to know what we know when we know it, and we need the, the UN to tell us that as, as soon as they can. Um, and I think that's that's important. That's an important benchmark for us in terms of uh, the ongoing process of not only our own internal discussions, internal to the government, but also our consultations that we have with other governments. This is not a unilateral process by Canada. This is one that is carried out in conjunction with a number of other countries right. doing similar things. And the second thing is there needs to be a longer term perspective on this issue, which the secretary general has also promised. We cannot have organizations that are at risk of being infiltrated uh, by groups that uh, are either terrorist or violent or have some other uh, axe to grind. The UN's neutrality is an absolutely essential uh, element of its work. And we can't have a situation where um, something like what happened uh, or appears to have happened on October the 7th ever happens again. There were atrocities committed on October the 7th, and we all need to say that. So those people who say, oh, this is, don't worry about it, just keep going, just do what you're doing, and don't try to improve the situation, I can't agree with that. We, we have to do what we have to do, and that is make sure that people are held accountable for what's happened, right. make sure that we're taking steps to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Uh, and I think that's a responsibility that we have. Uh, to ourselves, to each other, to taxpayers, and frankly, to the people who live in Gaza. It is essential for them to know that the organizations we choose to work with are organizations that have real deep integrity, and it's important for everybody to get to the bottom of what happened, but also, and this is where the, this is the hard part, to make sure that we're not ignoring the needs of the people who are in need of help, who are the beneficiaries of what it is that UNRWA is doing
1: in Gaza. Well, that Well, that's kind of where I wanted to go next. So, so uh, the, the Secretary General says within four weeks the, the initial investigation uh, should conclude. This longer issue of looking at how UNRWA works, and because uh, you've heard the allegations from Israel that Hamas has largely infiltrated, uh, you know, the, 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 the workforce of, of, of UNRWA, particularly inside Gaza, but. In the meantime, while that is being dealt with, there is this humanitarian crisis and, and aid groups are saying that even by giving them extra money and diverting money, as Canada and other countries are doing, they rely so heavily on UNRWA as the infrastructure inside Gaza, you know, to store their facilities, deliver their facilities, or sorry, deliver their aid, to, you know, and store them in their facilities. And, and they warn that even pausing the funding for a short period of time could... could could accelerate this disaster. So how do you get around that, knowing how important UNRWA is to the aid community to get get supplies in?
2: Well, as I said before, the the fact that some countries have decided to do what Canada has done, up to 15 of us, um, doesn't mean that UNRWA stops working, or stops working. It stops Uh, being UNRWA. um, Other governments may come in and do it. I mean, obviously, the Secretary General was not only... Talking to the donor countries in the last little while, he's been talking to other countries saying we need more money, um, and so that's that's something the Secretary General has to do. But we're 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 doing what we think is necessary to ensure that what we what we see as as a, as a serious problem mm-hmm. has to be addressed. But we're also doing what we what we believe is necessary, and what we will continue to think is necessary to make sure that the supplies get in. But let's look, David, for a moment at the broader picture. Uh, in the month of December, Canada called for a humanitarian ceasefire. That decision still stands. We believe there needs to be a ceasefire. We believe that there needs to be a greater supply of goods and services to Gaza. And we think that the implementation of getting the additional number of, of uh, amount of material into Gaza has to be accelerated. We, we support that. And we're doing what we can to fund that, together with a number of, of other countries. So, it, it's, a, it's, it's not an easy situation, but I think it's also important to recognize that Canada has not taken its eye off the broader needs of the situation, the fact that we continue to think that a nest ceasefire is necessary, we continue to think that there, more supplies have to get into Gaza, and we're doing everything we can to supply those groups that can actually supply, like the World Food Program. Right. Uh, like the World Health Organization and we've got an extra money to the uh, to OSHA which is the UN agency which is coordinating relief so we're not turning our away from this overall situation at all we have to keep our eye on both situations which is exactly what I think Canadians would expect their government
1: to do and that's what we're doing just as a final point, Ambassador, uh, I know there has been some discussion in the United States from some Republicans about permanently ending the relationship with UNRWA. Canada has, has more or less done that in the past under, under their former Harper government. Pierre Polyev uh, called them a terrorist organization this weekend. I know you're not going in, in that direction, but, but could Canada's relationship with UNRWA hinge on the outcome of this investigation? Is it possible Canada could sever its relationship depending on what the UN finds here?
2: I I, don't, I know that, that it's your job to try to get me to speculate on things, because that then becomes a the headline. I, I, this is not my first rodeo, David, so I'm not going to feed the beast. I'm not going to speculate on I'm not
1: that. trying to trap you. I, I, I'm legitimately curious if these are the stakes of, of what is happening here, because the allegations but are serious not, and being we, taken seriously.
2: i want to be trying to get you to come back to this question. It's not just what Canada does. It's right. what other countries do and what that signifies for the future of any organization. So it's important for Canada to understand, uh, Canadians to understand that we want um, our money to go to organizations where we can count on their integrity and count on the integrity of what everybody is doing. That's what people expect. UNRWA has a 75 year relationship with the countries in the Middle East that is based on a resolution that has been was passed by the General Assembly, endorsed by Canada um, in the late 1940s. So we need to come to grips with this fact. It's not just Canada standing up and saying this is what we're going to do. It's up to us to understand this is a big world out there. We have to talk to other countries. We have to engage with them. Mm. But Canada's commitment to ensuring the integrity of, of our funding and the effectiveness of our funding, that commitment is absolutely rock solid. And that's going to continue as it will for the other countries with whom we discuss these questions. Uh the, many of the European countries and Obviously, our friends in the United States and elsewhere, we're all looking at this situation in a way that will ensure the integrity of our funding and its effectiveness, and to deal with the impact of this severe humanitarian situation. There are 2 million people in Gaza without houses, without homes, without jobs, without work, and in many cases, without food. And that's something we can't lose sight of throughout this crisis.
1: Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. Thanks for joining us again today, sir. Thank you. Some child care centers across Alberta were closed yesterday to protest the federal child care program that they call unsustainable. The Association of Alberta Child Care Entrepreneurs says uh, 25,000 of its clients were affected in the first day of rolling closures to push back against $10 a day child care. They say the program is underfunded and the province shares those concerns.
0: I, I personally have some huge concerns about the level of funding that the federal government has put into this agreement. A couple of years ago, uh, when the federal government was undertaking this process, um, there was a, a lot of estimates put in about what it would actually take to have the system roll across the country. I think as all the provinces are realizing now that we're a couple of years into this, is that there is some significant concern amongst different provinces about the, um, the perceived lack of funding.
1: Crystal Churcher is the chair of the Association of Alberta Childcare Entrepreneurs. Uh, Crystal Churcher, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: So, when this $10 a day childcare program was launched, billions of dollars went into this system, but you're saying that it is unsustainable for the industry. Walk me through your concerns here.
3: You know, it's actually not even just me saying that it was underfunded. There's been several reports. Um, you know, the Parliamentary Budget Committee did a report showing all of the underfunding. Um, CARDIS did an amazing report, too, that showed each province um, how much the provinces would have to to top up the federal funding. Um, But I think that we are just two years in, so we're starting to kind of see the impact that the lack of funding and the way this is rolling out is starting to have across the country.
1: So, so what is the impact? Uh, explain it to me from your business. I, I know the fees for a parent will be capped at $10, but you'd be compensated for reducing your fees uh, to, to match that level through the government money. Why isn't that enough? Why isn't it working?
3: Um, well, it's kind of a complicated thing to, to explain, but the $10 a day um, promise for each child um, is really an average across the country. So it's an average across each province. Not all families are ever going to see $10 a day for child care. Um, in Alberta right now, we're at a $15 a day average. So again, it's not available to every family. It's an average across mm-hmm. the province. Um, how this is working is that we're not compensated by this program as operators, whether we're not for profit or for profit. Um, we've been asked to reduce our fees. So when we rolled this program out in Alberta in 2022, we were asked to immediately reduce parent fees by 50%. So um, 50% of the fees for child care would be paid by the parent on the first of the month. And then after the end of that month, we'd be able to essentially claim the other 50% back from the government. Um, that's how this is funded. Our fees were actually frozen when we signed into this. So fees don't change for us. Um, it's just who funds our program. So now we're in a situation in Alberta where we're just about to start this 15-month interim agreement, and the funding model has changed slightly. Um, the affordability grant for parents has gone up, which is amazing. Parents are seeing a massive, you know, reduction in child care fees. So the parents are paying about 15% or less to the operators on the first of the month. We're then claiming back sometimes 90, sometimes 85% of that full cost at the end of the month from the provincial government. So right. that's where we're at in Alberta. It, it's, a, it's really the same fees. It just depends on who's paying it.
1: Right. I, I know the YMCA has made similar complaints here in Ontario about mm-hmm. how you, know, you get a, a little bit of money up front and a lot of money at the end of the month. So is this a cash flow problem or is it a funding it's problem? Absolutely
3: absolutely a cash flow flow problem um i think funding long term is a problem as far as you know making sure we have adequate um quality and services in the future of childcare. but funding is an immediate issue in alberta like an, an issue for kind of tomorrow like how how are we going to pay rent for february 1st mm-hmm. when we only can access 15 percent of our full revenue on the first of the month um You know, one of our board members, she has a centre which is quite heavily subsidised, so she services a lot of low-income families. Um, 88% of her um, families are on subsidy as well as the affordability grant, and they pay zero to her on the first of the month. So coming tomorrow on February 1st, she'll receive about $12,000 from parents, and the rest she'll have to wait 40 to 45 days to get back from the province So she's really in a situation, she can't pay her rent tomorrow, she won't be able to pay payroll because there's just not enough access to cash flow for her.
1: Right. I mean, I I can understand this being a problem, right? You have to carry all of your operating costs and and your your inflexible structure costs for your space and these things Mm -hmm. while the money comes at the back end. So that's the provincial government, though, that reimburses that. So have you talked to them about changing the way, like doing weekly or middle of the month, end of the month, changing Mm -hmm. this? What is the the government of Alberta willing to do here to help you with this cash Um, payment system? I'm...
3: Hopefully, hopefully more than what they have so far for two years. Um, we, you know, we were kind of working with, with them shortly here. I, I think we came to a bit of a standstill in Alberta, working with our, our actual Children's Services Minister. Um, there was no give on what they would be willing to do as far as changing any of the way the program is, is set up. Um, we did do a, a day of action yesterday across the province, and um, we will be meeting with, with the ministry again tomorrow night. Um, so, hopefully that looks like, you know, we may be able to have some solution-based conversations and really come up with something to ensure that, you know, families have access to, to high-quality child care across the province. Uh,
1: I just wonder, the, the Alberta Families Minister said this was a small number of child care operators that don't support the program, but the vast majority do. How, how widespread, like, how big is your group that had this day of action? How many different centers are, are part of that? And what do you make of that characterization mm-hmm. from the minister?
3: Um, you know, I think we all have different perceptions, um, different lensing, depending on where you're standing, right? Um, I do not think that 25,000 spaces that have been closed across the province for a day is a small group of people. Um, we impacted a large number of families yesterday, and we're very gracious to those families for putting up with that inconvenience of not having childcare so that we could bring awareness to these issues. Um, the minister really, um, this is our fourth minister in children's services in Alberta in two years, and it's a complicated file for anyone to understand. And I, I think he's still catching up, and I'm always open to, you know, sharing information what it's like to be a, a child care operator on the ground and, and how this is actually rolling out. Um, you know, I, I look forward to some, some future conversations around the impact that that day had and how many centres were actually closed and, and how many participated. We... We have, you know, membership of almost 300 centers. Uh, we represent over 30,000 child care spaces across the province, which is over 25% of all child care in Alberta. And we had 100% solidarity in that day. So um, definitely not represented by a small number.
1: I, I know you say long-term, you think this is a funding issue, but I just want to be clear. Like right now, this is, this is not how much money is available for the program. It's how quickly the money moves from government bank accounts into your bank account, right? This is really what is at the um, crux of the issue right now.
3: Well, I mean, there's there's multiple issues when you have a federal program rolling out across the country that is, you know, really promoting only the support of nonprofit, standardized, publicly funded childcare. Um, that immediately causes issues for for parents. There's no choice in that. You mm-hmm. get to pick from this model of childcare. Um, it also excludes the private child care, which in Alberta is 70% of all childcare, so um, that's an issue. I mean, that's something we've spoke about. I spoke at the Senate committees on this. Um, that's a major issue that we have with the federal program. Funding wise, I think that, you know, it's very confusing for people to understand this has been marketed as a $10 a day program that every Canadian will have access to, which is not the case. These are provincial averages. You would have to be able to receive full subsidy as well as the full affordability grant to be able to ever see a $10 a day childcare space. And then from my understanding is what we're going to be seeing is that the shortfall in the funding, both provincially and federally, not all childcare spaces that are being created in each province are are going to have access to these programs. So there's just not enough money to create widespread childcare across each province that is federally funded at a $10 a day rate. Um, it's going to start to be targeted in Alberta where only centers that are opening in very high needs childcare deserts they're called um, will actually have access to these programs Mm. so that again is not representing a $10 a day model for all Albertans that's representing a $10 a day model for centers that can access this and that's where the question and concern around access comes from you know um, it's not for everyone. It, it's not available to everyone.
1: But, but in terms of the viability uh, of your members and, and, a, and a business like mm-hmm. yours, it sounds to me like it, it's the inconsistent cash flow, the inability to have cash on hand at the beginning mm-hmm. of the month to make payroll, to pay rent. That is the most right. pressing and immediate concern. Am I understanding that correctly? Because we're going to talk to the minister that's, in a little bit, and I want to be able to ask her about this.
3: Sure. That's absolutely an immediate concern. Um, that's a, like, tomorrow concern in our province. Um, but that will be a provincial concern. I, I can already see, you know, the federal government has given the funds, which are a substantial amount of money. Like, I'm not downplaying the investment federally in this program. I think it's, you know, been wonderful to see the government take a stance on affordable child care. Um, our federal minister will not support anything, you know, about what the provinces are doing. That is up to the provinces. They negotiated right. their own deals with the federal government, right? So I think that, you know, from a federal minister's standpoint, This is an Alberta problem, and the province will need to fix this funding model. Um, You know, the YMCA in Ontario is saying very similar things, I think. Um, I've seen it and heard it across the country, different, you know, we're all seeing the same things. So I think, like, what I like to use for an analogy of this program is, um, you know, the province's were handed a bag of money they were given a contract with the federal government to essentially buy their child care systems and in doing that they have put restrictions on these child care systems they've left the provinces with you know these um, guidelines and contracts that they have to follow in order to continue to get this government funding from the federal government and I think that the provinces are struggling to put together systems that work within each province because we all have a very different diverse child care system in each province Um, they don't understand the child care system. They don't understand the sector. Um, They're coming in and trying to rebuild the sector without the knowledge or understanding to do it correctly. And I think that's why we're starting to see it crumble here.
1: Crystal Churcher, I I appreciate your time. That's Crystal Churcher, the chair of the Association of Alberta Child Care Entrepreneurs. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Have a great day.
1: Okay. For more on this, we're going to speak with Jenna Suds. She's the Federal Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development, and she joins me now in the studio. Minister, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: You, you heard the concerns there. I, I know it's a provincial issue, the, the cash flow, but I wanted to get your sense as the minister at the federal level responsible for this. Is that how this is supposed to work? Because I've never run a small business, but that seems like it would be a real operational hardship.
4: Yes, well, thank you, David, and first of all, I have to say, as a mom, my heart goes out to the families that I know were impacted yesterday. Um, you know, child care is a necessity. We need it in order to go to work, and so, you know, I feel for those families as they scrambled yesterday. Um, I think what's important to to highlight here is, uh, you know, we don't expect that this system can be built overnight. Um, This is a major nationwide system that we are working to build with our partners, with the provinces and territories, and it's been a resounding success. Undoubtedly there's challenges along the way that we work with our partners to overcome. But the impact for families of this program is just incredible. And I, I have the, the honor of being able to have these conversations with families to understand that impact. Uh, in Alberta it's over $10,000 a month that these families are saving. So undoubtedly there's, there's challenges to work through. Um, but we're here to work with our partners to do so. Ten
1: thousand a month or ten thousand a year? Excuse a me, year. ten thousand okay. a year. So like, that's, that's quite the break yeah. in Alberta. But but on that point, like, look, uh, you know, I, my kids are out of childcare now. I know how much it costs for me, um, and and you know, the value of the sort of the price tag that mm-hmm. is being promised for this program is appealing but parents can't get the benefit if the operators can't make it work. Mm-hmm. And, and you heard what Crystal Churcher was saying there, the way the cash flow is working. Mm-hmm. I know that's the provincial government, but like as a partner in that, what, what, what insight do you have into that? What influence do you have on that to change it?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, the example we're talking about today with Alberta... Um, just to share some of the background. So the funding that we're providing uh, to the province over five years is almost $4 billion, Mm -hmm. $3.8 billion. Our expectations with that, which is an agreement, it's public that has been signed uh, with the province of Alberta, require them to, first of all, reduce fees, which we saw happen quite quickly, get to 50% and get to $10 a day uh, by 2026, but also to create 68,000 new spaces. So those are the parameters under which we agree to give the the Government of Alberta these dollars. How Alberta proceeds in working with operators, um, how as we are hearing the challenge here now, how they deal with these cash flow, how they build their funding formula, these are decisions that the province and the operators need to make collectively. I,
1: I completely understood that this is provincial jurisdiction and this is provincial responsibility, uh, but this was federal liberal policy, you know, and, and and it's not just in Alberta. We're hearing these complaints. We're hearing mm-hmm. it in Ontario. Like uh, the YMCA are not radicals. Like they, they you know they they run these programs and they're struggling because of this. So so how concerned are you mm-hmm. that the way this is being implemented? Implemented, is causing challenges for what really is a core economic affordability and social policy of your government?
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're quite right. This is a core policy of our government and one that I'm incredibly proud of. This is, uh, again, a nationwide system we're building. It won't happen overnight. But this is good for kids. It's good for families. It's good for the economy. So, of course, I'm worried when I hear challenges in Alberta or in Ontario, as you've referenced. But I do believe, you know, brick by brick, we are building this system. Um, You know, the agreements that we've signed with all of these provinces, the provinces had clear, um, clear transparency as to what our expectations were and what funding we would give them to execute on those expectations. Right. And so, you know, it's not easy, but we'll continue to work with them to get there.
1: But the, the assumptions change that the, the programs were uh, developed under because the cost of living and aff- inflation has hit mm-hmm. every sector. And childcare operators, you know, have to feed the kids. They got to, you know, the, the, they have, they, they don't have big margins and they would be affected by this. So we've heard Daniel Smith suggest maybe there needs to be more federal money. Premier Ford has suggested mm-hmm. maybe there needs to be more federal money. Is there space for more federal money on this over the five-year term or seven-year, in Ontario's case, of the deals you signed?
4: There is no more money. We've made a $30 billion investment across the country in building this system. And I would challenge, I would push back, uh, and in particular on Alberta. Uh, Alberta spent half of the money that we sent to them last year so if they are lapsing dollars, if they haven't been able to utilize all of the dollars that we've sent them, David, would, would you give them more?
1: So well, well, why, why has that not been spent? Well, what, is your, what are your officials telling you? They, they can't get the uptake or they're just not spending it? What, what's the answer there?
4: That's, that's the million-dollar question, frankly. And I think it's one that families deserve an answer to. Um, as we've seen, the operators uh, in Alberta are having challenges. Uh, it is up to the province to sit down with the operators, with parents, to understand how they can move forward. And as I've said, you know, we've, we've put $4 billion on the table with Alberta. Um, it's at their you know, prerogative of how to best direct that to ensure that families benefit from this program and so I, you know, I challenge them to do that. We're here as partners to help them.
1: But surely there's a compliance function, an audit mm-hmm. function in the agreements you have with the different provinces, so is that your department? Is it Minister Freeland's Department of Finance? Like, uh, what, what are your officials asking and finding out about why the money's yeah. not getting spent the way it's supposed to?
4: So there is annual reporting uh, as well as uh, action plans that are developed with the provinces. Um, The main metrics are the main metrics I alluded to, affordability, Mm -hmm. so ensuring that we get to the reduced uh, costs for families, as well as the space creation piece. Um, In the case of Alberta, I mentioned 68,000 spaces we've agreed upon to have created within these uh, five years. They are at uh, just over 9,000 spaces that they have created. Um, through the work that, that we do together and the plans that they provide us, uh, they have to demonstrate how they will meet those targets, so how they will meet, for example, the space creation target uh, by the end of the agreement.
1: You heard the frustration there with Crystal Churcher, and, and like mm-hmm. she's very aware of the mm-hmm. jurisdictional splits here, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, she said that's a province problem, this is a federal problem. She understands where the challenges are coming from. But if the system doesn't work for parents because of... Alberta's not spending enough money, as you say, or the YMCA can't make a go of it because of the way the cash flows come from Ontario, then it doesn't work, right? And and that goes against the Mm -hmm. policy objective uh, that that you're trying to set out here. So how can you overcome the jurisdictional walls Mm -hmm. between the federal government and the provincial governments to overcome some of these challenges to to get the program that your government wants?
4: Well, I would uh, I would say that for the vast majority of provinces and territories, it is working really well. Hmm. And I look to PEI PEI as of January first has implemented ten dollars a day. Uh, child care, saving families $4,000 a year. Um, so we're seeing that progress. We're seeing out in BC they've implemented wage increases for ECES as well as other benefits. So, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done to work with provinces that are having challenges. And we do have dialogue. We have regular meetings um, collectively to ensure that they have the support and the best practices from other jurisdictions to learn from. Um, above and beyond, as I've, as I've said, I, I think there's an expe- expectation from Canadian families that we build this system together. Many of these provinces celebrated when, this, when, this, uh, when these agreements were signed, when this policy was introduced, they celebrated this because they understand the impact it has for families in their provinces. So, you know, I think we all need to, to work together to make sure it's successful.
1: Minister of Genocides, Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate
4: pleasure. it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Well, the Conservative Party broke some fundraising records in 2023. Elections Canada says the Conservative raised a record $35.2 million in donations last year. That's more than double the $15.6 million brought in by the governing Liberal Party and five times what the NDP raised last year. Health Minister Mark Holland says the Conservatives are capitalizing on Canadians' fear. Holding a mirror to people's anger and just making them more worked up, pushing into their wounds, into their fear, uh, has great profit in it. And I have, the conservatives have been enormously successful in exploiting that. Well, what do these fundraising numbers tell us about how the next campaign may be framed? Because there's some time and there's some money. And we're going to bring in the power panel on that. Rob Benzi is the Toronto Star's Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Amanda Alavero is a former Liberal Party communication strategist. Leah Ward is a former Director of Communications for Alberta NDP Premier Rachel Notley. And here with me is Tim Powers, a former strategist for conservative parties. So, so, so Tim- you've
5: got three has-beens and you and Benzie's.
1: Is that <laughs> it? That's great. <pretty>, I- <laughs> Well, you know, um, all right, Tim, thank you for that contribution. <laughs> uh, let's start with you. Um, this is a lot of money. And, and, mm-hmm. and like the, the, I know the conservatives spend more money on fundraising than the other parties do. Uh, and they have a more activated uh, political base, typically, than the other parties do. There are limits on what you can spend during a campaign, but no limits on what they can spend between now and the campaign. So just what kind of a competitive advantage does this sort of cash give a party that's out in front?
5: put it, let me put it in a context that I think everybody who watches television, particularly sports television, will understand right now. Even Amanda, even Amanda, because she's had some great great sport analogies (laughs) recently. You think the uh, gambling ads, the online gambling ads, you're going to see a lot of them, and you have seen a lot of them? Polyev now has the ability to almost match that buy, right? To buy as many uh, ads as he wants to curate about his image. I think there's a new one, or one that was new to me with Pierre and the puzzle that's uh, that's out there right now, again, trying to depict him um, in, in a frame that he's comfortable with before the Liberals do that. That's a huge advantage. And I think mm-hmm. you've seen the benefits of that. Uh, I mean, the criticism over the fall, many of the criticisms that have been directed at the Liberals, one of them is, why haven't you punched back? Why have you let them have, ha- have uh, the free run of the, the airwaves? And that's going... To continue. That money allows you to do that. It also allows you to engage in a space where the Conservatives seem to be doing very well, and that's various uh, social media platforms. And what that does isn't just advertising, it cultivates data, which is so vital in this day and age. So it's a huge advantage.
1: So, uh, Amanda, we know. Um coming out of the cabinet retreat and and what we heard from the prime minister when he spoke to caucus last week that they're trying to frame this is the year of the choice right to lay out the stark choice they see Mm -hmm. between canadian voters and that means defining pierre polly in a way that his negatives go up the war chest on one side to dirt up his reputation compared to the war chest on the other side are nowhere near even so how do the liberals adapt to that
6: this is such a big challenge i mean if you haven't had enough of Pierre Polyev in his tight T-shirts from the last campaign. Then brace yourself because more is coming. And they telegraphed this in the fall, right? Mm-hmm. They said, we're going to spend a lot more dollars on uh, Pierre's public image, his profile, building it with Canadians. And the Liberals responded in kind saying, and this has been really the criticism of the party and the desire of the members and those who support the Liberals is, when are we going on the attack, right? We watch the Conservatives roll out these long-form 15-minute policy videos. We watch them spend $3 million on Pierre Polyev's, like, rehabilitation campaign to make him more relatable. And then Liberals really haven't responded in kind yet. So when you see a gap of this magnitude, like a $15 million discrepancy between the two parties, it It's extremely alarming because those are ad dollars and ad buys, and those ad buys mean how many times you're going to see an ad, how many times you're going to consume one over social media or over broadcast, and they are just going to outspend the Liberals at this point, so they're going to have to get super clever with how they get their message out.
1: So, so Leah, it's not just more than the Liberals. It's more than the Liberals and the NDP combined by almost $13 million dollars. Uh, wh- where do you th- what? What does that tell us about the political landscape a- a- and the ability of two of the big national parties, uh, you know, to the left, to compete with the big one on the right?
7: I mean, wh- when we're looking at the numbers, there's not a lot of loss from both the NDP no. and uh, and the Liberals. So I mean, there's some comfort to the those parties, you know, in that sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the panel, I think there's some consensus here, right? Like that much money is a tremendous advantage. Particularly outside of an election period, where there are no spending limits, and they can fill the airwaves, particularly in paid media, um, they have a tremendous ability to understand what drives engagements and interactions um, in in digital media and in social media. And with this kind of money, the the potential for for the conservatives is I, I would be I'd be very nervous uh, if if I were the liberals. Um, the you know the only perhaps you know uh, uh, I don't know uh, comfort they could take is in Alberta uh the alberta ndp outfundraised the ucp uh for a, a full year, every quarter for an entire year and even 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 partially in in 20, once, partially for 2021 all of 2022 um doubled on uh, nearly doubled their fundraising numbers um and still lost the election by a hair so mm. you know it's not all money <laughs> uh you know what you do with it matters but unfortunately for the liberals what they do they they're very effective and so you know i think this is bad news
1: so, so Benzi, it's not just the, the high-level dollar amounts, right? It, it's the number of people it's coming from. There's 200,000 yeah. small donors to the Conservatives, just 38,000 for the Liberals. Now, th- that's always been kind of that way with the Conservatives. They have this highly motivated, consistent, you know, monthly donor base. Um, but, but what does that tell us about, you know, uh, where the Conservative movement is and what the other parties might need to do to try to, to, to even try to match that?
0: I mean, it's very difficult, David, for the other parties to motivate their bases uh, in this way. Uh, And those 200,000 donors, those are 200,000 voters as well. I mean, if you're going to write a check to a political party, chances are you're also going to walk through the snow or whatever in October 2025 and cast a ballot uh, for that party. So I think that's if I'm Mr. Polyev, I'm very excited about that now to Leah's point, the party that raises the most money doesn't always win, and this is the, the, the comfort that I think that the liberals would find, <laughs> small comfort as it may be, the record that Mr. Polyev's party set last year uh, eclipsed a record that they had set in 2018, and they lost the 2019 and the 2021 elections, despite out-fundraising the liberals. Now, the, they're, they're doing even better than they've ever done before, and Mr. Polyev's uh, slick ad campaign last summer, I think, was effective. I think we're going to see a lot of uh ads this year and not just on sort of boutique channels we're going to see it during major sports games i don't know if they'll have a super bowl ad this year but we're going to see it in in, you know in in hockey playoffs things like that where canadians are really engaged and they're not zooming through uh you know uh, taped programming or anything like that so that's why it's, it's 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 to tim's point it's very important to raise these big dollars if you want to advertise in the in a mass way like that.
5: And it also adds a nimbleness, which is important, right? It's not the big ads mm-hmm. and or the regional ads. It's even very specific local ads. Uh, give you example. In Atlantic Canada, five years ago, you would have never heard in a, a pre-writ period radio ads, conservative-specific issue radio ads. Uh, they're buying radio ads in seats they're hoping to win. The Liberals and the NDP don't have the resources to do that or right. even defend the base that they have. Those little... Mm-hmm. Actions and activities that cost Mm -hmm. much less can have a bigger impact in flipping a seat here, there. And uh, that's what they're trying to do with this, too. The local spend is fascinating. You know, in a very ironic way, the conservatives don't want the the government to invest in the media, but they're doing a ton of investing (laughs) in the media right (laughs) now. But they are helping local markets. The the
1: ad buys are in heavy rotation. I, I have seen conservative ads on this channel which is a fascinating thing to see. But, but, but I mean, I, 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 on that point, I, I mean, the, the way they're operating now, the conservatives, it, it is, they're in, a, they're in a campaign until yes. voting day, right? I mean, Garipolyev yes. is traveling around the country. This money allows for that to happen. It allows for them to hire staff. And as Tim was saying, where the liberals might have to focus on a big national thematic strategic buy, yeah. they have this capacity now to do the nimble, tactical switch and pivots uh, on issue by issue and, and riding by riding in some cases.
6: For sure. And I would argue that they've been in campaign mode since Polyev was yes. elected leader. Yeah, well, yeah, That's yeah. been their style of communications from, from go. The other thing that they have the ability to do, which we don't talk about as often, is deeper research, better focus groups. Mm-hmm. So they can get into the pockets of the country where very specific messaging will resonate and matter. And they can deliver that messaging at a higher frequency to those areas and Honestly, the other parties just won't have the funds to go that deep not just on the buy itself, but also on the research. What do people want to hear? What are, they, what are they really moved by? And they're going to have the ability to go much deeper in that area, which I think can give them an advantage in pockets of the country that the Liberals and the NDP won't be able to touch in the same way.
1: So, so Leah, the, the secret sauce for the Liberals in the last couple of campaigns ha- has been, in some ways, the industry of their leader on the campaign mm-hmm. trail. I mean, Justin Trudeau's long days, multiple cities, multiple provinces, he doesn't seem to get tired. Other leaders haven't been able to match that. Polyev definitely has that level of stamina and capacity. He has the freedom as the opposition leader to do that now. How does Jagmeet Singh respond to that? How does Mr. Blanchet respond to that in Quebec? And, And how do the liberals who are prisoners of governing,
7: how do they respond to that? Yeah, it, uh, without the money, it's pretty tough to compete. You know, uh, so you know if if touring uh, if touring is possible and getting into like I, I think the only way to fight against this type of massive war chest and machinery that's being uh, uh, collected behind Paripauli ever is to look at micro targeting yeah. um, areas where you think you can ha- have a competitive edge. And so if it means putting the leader in smaller communities where they get direct access and you know one to one time uh, with voters, that's 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 probably you know a, a, a good defense against against a massive uh, air air war that, that you just can't compete against. Um, but but at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be tough for them.
1: You know, Benzi, just uh, at, you know, as a guy knows Ontario and Toronto really well. Uh, that's uh, it's always been little thin margins of vote efficiency that have done it for the Liberals. Not always been, but that's been a key part of them holding on to the fortress GTA basically because their data in some ways has been better. To Amanda's point, this maybe lets the Conservatives really kind of close the gap there, right? And how, how, what impact do you see this happening on Fortress GTA for the Liberals potentially?
0: I think it's going to be the thing to watch in the next election, David, because uh, yes, the the, the 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 Conservatives have a sophisticated uh, voter identification system. They are very good at it. I know because the Provincial Conservatives are really, really good at it. Now, the, there's not a lot of Crossover among the parties, but there are some similarities, and in, in, in terms of the technology that they use and the vendors that they use, and I think that's something that I'd be watching very closely because they are very good at getting their voter to the to the poll. So I I I think, but I mean, the the problem for the the, the Tories is that it's a dominoes kind of theory here in Ontario, right? If you you either win. Thirty seats, or you win ninety seats. It's hard to, it's hard to, or eighty seats. It's hard to win, you know, fifty or sixty. It's just, it just, it doesn't seem to. Get, they don't seem to get those breaks somehow. Uh, and if Jugmeet Singh has a good campaign. Uh, that could help the Tories in a bunch of ridings in Ontario. If he has a bad campaign as he did last time, that helps the Liberals.
7: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the, the key thing for the Conservatives in Ontario is to win more seats than everybody else. You know, if they win the majority of seats, stack that on with the West and, and, and everything else, yep. they, they probably uh, come out on top. Alright gang, we're out of time. I want to thank the Power Panel for being here. Rob Benzie, Amanda Alvaro, Leah Ward and Tim Powers. <laughs> That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.